mix up the form a little bit and uh, to make us a bit more of a kind of, excuse me, an improvisational conversation and um, <laughs> see what learning arises. We're exploring different Dharma <laughs> pedagogies in real time. <laughs> and um, And sometimes I do have the feeling like, who said an hour-long talk at 7.30 at night is the optimal learning <laughs> approach, you know? Like, anyway. So, wanted to have a, uh, a conversation, and, um, and we gave Dawn, Dawn the night off. Uh, um, so it's the three of us, and... Um, and yeah, and the question is um, to explore the different dimensions of, of freedom, yeah? Like, we say freedom, but that's not one thing. There are m- many different dimensions of freedom. And freedom, we could say, is has a a vertical axis and a horizontal axis, yeah? The depth axis, that is what gets most of the attention, yeah? Experiences of depth that uh, transform something in the heart. But we also cannot overlook the the aspect of of freedom that is about breadth meaning the dhamma seeping into more and more corners of our life of our mind of our heart and um in a way uh what actually makes us a, a refuge, yeah, for others, make of oneself a refuge for other, for, for other beings, that depends deeply on the breadth dimension, hmm. yeah? The different corners where the, the Dhamma has penetrated or not. And so we usually talk about enlightenment as how, how high the highs are, how free the freedoms are. But I am personally also interested in how low my lows are, yeah? Just how far can I wander? Just how severed can my connection to Dharma be? And that's a kind of less glamorous aspect of this, but important, yeah? Important. And then there are questions about the, um, is this a, a category or a continuum? Yeah? Meaning like a yes, no, free, not free. Or is there a whole spectrum and where where some our heart is falling in each moment somewhere along that spectrum? I'm curious what, what arises, but it may be that it's 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 both. It's actually both. There are these discrete inflection points in practice where something shifts in a way, maybe a reversible way. And there's also this very gradual accumulation of goodness, a, a kind of accumulation that we often don't even recognize as it's happening. Hmm. Yeah. So... Um, Well, we want to uh, explore this and have a vague sense of the the form of of posing a question and then inviting um, the others potentially to to explore, expand that 
that particular um, aspect. And then the, the person asking the question might get asked the question, and we'll just try to follow the thread of aliveness, yeah? Where, where the energy is, and just go there, yeah? And um, there's a little high-wire dharma, you know. Uh, but um, we love and trust each other, and so... Um, and yeah so it's not good when you're the moderator and your two interview subjects are laughing at you you know that's like get on with it thanks philip okay that's good mute him mute him leona mute him um all right twary um, yeah, uh, of the aspect of freedom. What is on your What is on your mind? These the many dimensions of uh, of how the heart becomes freer. Yeah, I'm glad that actually we love and trust Matthew. He's the one that came up with this, and and we've been thinking how could we make this about Dhamma and not about my opinion, you know, just in general, what I think about freedom. And so I was thinking today, my, I think that, that when I realized the Dhamma was changing in me is when I stopped being so reactive. That, so, so when I was sitting on the cushion... I kept trying to practice. And then there'd be these moments when out of the blue, something that would have just sent me off the rails and I wouldn't, I wouldn't react. I just could hold it, be with it. I was upset and I knew I was upset, but I wasn't getting reactive. And the only thing I could point to was learning to be with uh, the unpleasantness of sitting. And somehow my mind translated that into a greater liberation. And I think that's, where my, that's when that freedom came, seeing it like that, out of the blue, mm. without me having to, you know, make myself be nicer, non-reactive, mm. <laughs> you know, because mm. that wasn't working. <laughs> yeah. So, so in a, what I'm hearing, like it didn't even feel like in mindfulness, we often do emphasize the sense of choice, choicefulness, but it sounded like almost like um, you weren't, you didn't have to back yourself out of a karmic corner in the first place. It just what you weren't having to choose non reactivity, it was yeah. kind of organic organic or just steadiness is that a fair way i think that choice is when we're sitting that's Mm. when i think the choice is Mm. so we're constantly choosing to begin again choosing to uh investigate or inquire into discomfort choosing to to stay with the sit when the mind says okay let's get up you know it's all of these choices, these choice points we have when we're practicing, mm. that's what I noticed, mm. is that that choice point when I'm sitting doesn't seem like it has any bearing on anything. Mm. But what I begin to notice is that the mind follows that choice point when I was doing whatever, mm. uh, just walking around in my everyday life. It was learning on the cushion, how to be in my outer world. Mm. And yeah. I just didn't realize that choosing to stay with, say, uh, unpleasant without trying to push it away would have that big of an impact on me. Mm. Mm. It doesn't seem like it. I mean, we live in a world where it's all about uh, self-help, fix yourself, imagine you're impossible, and you got to make everything happen. And here I was learning something that didn't seem like it had any rational relationship with sitting on the cushion, but the mind somehow understood how to 
apply it mm. in some random moment. Mm. And I knew it was, I mean, I think that's why the Buddha pointed to non-self. I think that's why he emphasized it so much that if, if you think it's you making yourself less reactive, then it's a different world than if you notice that the practice is what allows us to be non-reactive. Mm. Mm. Yeah. You see? Yeah. That's good. That's good. Mm-hmm. So, um, <laughs> um, yeah, so, so I, a, f- a couple things came up. Um, well, first off, Terry Gross should get a raise. This is no joke, you know, like... <laughs> Um, <laughs> sitting, the way you were described, I love how you're describing it. Sitting is like, it's what came to mind, it's literally like practicing in the way one practices scales, practicing freedom. Yes, that's and, what I think it is. Practicing freedom. Yeah. And the mind, it's, it's almost like we don't know how to access that. And it doesn't make any sense because the sit itself seems like it's a constant struggle of coming back and doing it again and mm. trying it over with. But anyone that has any kids, <laughs> you just have to take one moment in time. If you have any kids, or better, if you don't have any kids, go around someone, a little kid that just learned how to tie their shoe. And, you know, before they start tying their shoes... You can get them ready, get yourself ready, you're out the door. And then they learn how to tie their shoe. And all of a sudden, the whole world stops. And you got to factor in a half hour for, for getting the loop. And you can say, I'll do it. No, 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 I can do it. You know, and it, it, just, it takes forever. So, so that is what I think is happening. Because now... We all tie our shoes and we don't even think about it. So that practice is really practicing freedom. And freedom comes with not following those impulses. Not following those impulses. At least I, mm. I'm thinking it. What do you- and that way, that's, you're really saying it's non-conceptual. Yes. It's just literally practicing practice. It's practicing and it's practice. And not, it's not doing theory. Yes. And that's that's this is the orientation from the direct experience to the teachings rather than trying to uh, uh, make yourself become what the teachings are. That's you right. simply practice and then gradually the mind ma- manifests what the teachings have been. Yes. This is really a radical different. It's thing. radical. Cuz so many people start their practice trying to make themselves be like what they're hearing in, in the way of the lists and so forth. Mm. It's interesting. Because yeah. you don't know. So you think That's you right. got to, you think there's something, there's some secret teaching out there. <laughs> <laughs> I always tell Philip, because I think he knows some secret stuff that he's not telling people. So I'm like, what's the, what's the secret teaching? <laughs> but we think there's some secret understanding. It cannot be just that liberation is following the breath or staying in the body. It cannot be that. But I think it is. Mm. I think it's just that simple. Mm. Mm. You know? I, I, that, that sense of, um, yeah, it, it's such a predominant frame. We get like kind of seduced into the mode as, as your, your teacher, uh, Lungpur Sumedho says, like, that here is me with my problems, there is enlightenment somewhere out there, and then I'm traveling along this path of healing, of freedom, to uh, awakening. And there's a sense of, of almost like freedom as an addition to the self. Yeah, it's like a new, a new possession or something, or it's a new, it's more ownership. And there's that actual... Um, the the very vision of spiritual unfolding has a sakayaditi self and uh, and a certain kind of a becoming. What I was talking about last night, bhava tanha, yeah. And so, but it's so hard to 
not be seduced into that in a certain way. Like here I am, me and all my problems and I'm a mess and I, you know, like, okay, where do I, and, and I, oh, there really is pain here and there, and this practice really is helpful. And so that frame is so natural to pick up self as a patient and this as the medicine and then but then we get very dualistic about it and so i'm wondering what what either of you think about like how do how to not practice in such a kind of self-constricted way yeah when it like gets yeah does that make sense i i I think to a large degree that people want to get it right. And um, I don't think that's very helpful as an orientation. I think it's much more helpful to show up for your experience. And uh, from showing up for your experience, you, um, uh, you find out what's true. And then you're moving more and more from a reactive mind to a responsive mind. And they, I, I thought Tori put it very well, that it would fit in with brain science, what we're learning about brain science, which we're at the very beginning of, so we want to be very careful with all these great proclamations about brain, brain science, but um, that, that the, the reconditioning happens in, in just in the doing, and it doesn't really need the theory that much, you know, it just... But the theory is what holds us and inspires us. And so that's maybe the biggest use. We need some way to, to look at our experience to be willing to stay with it. And all of these different descriptions that the list uh, capture for us, it really allows us to stay with our experience and it gives us uh, a holding possibility. It's, uh, and it doesn't have to be endless possibility, but uh, holding enough possibility that uh, we will keep practicing. And that's that holding that possibility we call faith, the sadhana. Yeah. Uh, and I, from the beginning, uh, I was very clear that I was interested in unity and wholeness. And I wrote about this when I was a columnist for the Yoga Journal and all of this. But I would say to my teachers, you know, I'm, I am... They're, and, the old days, there was really go for it, you know, get liberated, and I, I'm I, I'm all for that, but I'm not I'm not willing to exclude the 24/7 of of my human life and all of my interactions with other human beings. I just I I could not that didn't that felt that did not feel in harmony with me, you know. So I was so and so I would I called it this wholeness and unity, and it is. Uh, it's given me a good orientation in that way in, in terms of change has just flowered rather than, oh, I'm accomplishing something. Mm-hmm. Change just flowers when it flowers. And you don't, you're not in charge of when that is. People ask me this all the time. And they'll say, well, when will this end? Or when does this happen? Uh, and I always say, when it happens. <laughs> it happens when it happens. And they, and they all this idea of, the, the accomplishing, I thought you were saying quite well in terms of selfing, that we, we can easily create self. We can have spiritual ambition, and we, and we presume we're going to measure ourselves, right? We who claim we don't know, but then on the other side of our brain, we're kind of judging ourselves or going to improve and all of this, as though we could, we could know. But we, we, we start from don't know mind. That's the truth of our experience. But the habit, uh, the, the habit is this, you know, taking, uh, t- assuming we know and we're supposed to fix it. It's not like learning to play tennis, you know, where you can, you know, you can, there's some sort of progression on, on that or something, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. But I don't think Dharma practice is like that, do you? Mm-hmm. No. Um. <laughs> Um, I'm not going to deflect you. Well, no, I am going to deflect your question with another question, um, which is what was coming up. Uh, um, how does one, you know, I, for sure, at, for, for a period of years, many years, I felt like my... 
um, yeah, Dhamma Chanda, like longing for the Dhamma was totally inextricably bound up with egoic, ambitious, competitive striving, yeah? And would be kind of tormented you know it was it was of of like spiritual spiritual progress being you know um yeah it it was it was it, it what was tricky is it was both there was like this really deep longing for the dhamma yeah which didn't even care about freedom it didn't even care about it didn't care about anything you know, my life, my little life, like that was also incidental. It's like, what is this path, you know? And it, it's no longer like a, at all about an outcome or getting somewhere, which is itself a sign that the Kaleshas have taken root, yeah? And... So there was that. It was like, I, you know, I had no intention to be in this realm, or, you know, and, but it was like this longing for Dhamma. And then it was like, just, I'm picturing like, you know, something densely woven together with all the striving and the kind of, to the point where I literally hurt, hurt myself, you know, pushing my body past its limits and, um, and I like could see some of the egoic striving that was bound up with the Dhammachanda, but I like could not resist it. I just, it was just, and, and because they was like fused with wholesomeness too, it was like even harder. Yeah. And I still feel like I have not learned all the lessons of that particular kind of contraction, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, uh, kind of like, how, how does one, we come to practice and we practice in the way we live, we meditate the way we do everything. You know, we practice a retreat the way we do everything. It's like a, we bring it all. We don't check the check the habits at the door or something. How do we purify our intention for practice? Yeah, mm-hmm. how does it become freer, even as we're still our heart is still confined? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was gonna hope Philip would answer that, but I want to add. I want to add one more version of that same thing because I also had that same degree of struggle that uh, Matthew's talking about, but it was to fix myself. I, I, I thought I was so messed up and I needed the Dhamma to make me right, to fix it. Because if, 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 if the Dhamma didn't work, I was going to be lost forever. So I thought it was uh, encumbrant, encumbrant on me to know the Dhamma, get it right, fix it, make myself better. And like Matthew, man, I was in torment trying to make the Dhamma be like some kind of self-help fixed-to-airy process. And it was never, it never worked. It never worked. I just kept striving, 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 and it didn't work. And I think when I turn the corner is um, is when things begin to change. But and I and I somehow let go of the striving. But I don't know how. People ask me all the time, "How do you do that?" I don't know how I turn that corner. I don't know when it stopped being about fixing me and more about love for the Dhamma. I don't know. Mm. 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 One way that that I think of that, um, just to say that I didn't come with my experience, my beginning experience was different than each, each person in the room would have a different experience also, but I, 
I was, I was, I'd, I'd sort of worked out dukkha and the, the truth of dukkha. I'd worked that out for myself, for just because of circumstances. So that was such a, that was such a, a service for me. You know, I was just very fortunate. But also, I had very low expectations of what I could do. Just giving the, I, 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 I did not, I didn't come into all this with, uh, you know, I, uh, you know this this loving father and the whole world reviving around me and therefore I'm entitled to, you know, this great confidence in oneself. I did not come with a great confidence, but I came with great sincerity. Mm. And I felt, and what I, I, what I, my guide was staying authentic to myself mm. and staying authentic in the experience of practice. And it's still true to this day. And I'm, all of the things, these things that many of you on different retreats have heard me teach, those are all things that I developed from myself, including the three renunciations. Those were all for me in my own personal practice. And it turned out they have general use. But So I was very development-oriented that way. But to go specifically to the question, I would say it's purification of the motive. If you, if, you, if, 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 if you want a general kind of felt sense, orientation, that, that there becomes less and less of selfing in practice, less a feeling of getting, and it's more of this feeling of available. There's the purification of the motive. And we're not being disrespectful to the ego. We want to take care of the ego. We do not. And when we have the purification practice that... The, the way Tori was talking about that in Matthew 2, there's a huge amount of purification sitting there on the cushion. And we, 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 from my view, we would welcome that. That's really welcoming because that's make, that purification allows the availability. So in a way, we become healthier ego-wise and all, but that's not what the Buddha was doing. Nor was the Buddha making make, make, making nicer people or that way. The the ethics was so important. So because you, the mind can't, if the mind's in conflict with itself, it's much harder for you to grow. So you that that's what we're doing. We're getting out of the way, and that's and so there's that purification from all of our past some scars in that way. But the purification of the motive. As you know when you, you know when you're when you're there it's wholesome and not wholesome your motivation and but it's not that you're supposed to judge or compare you're discerning about it you're discerning and gradually gradually the dharma does start doing us and we're not doing the dharma so much anymore it's doing us and our motive our motive isn't I'm going to accomplish this. There's not an I that no the the I there's not an I that wants to be enlightened anymore. It's it, it's a different organization inside and just our regular old selves that we are. We just uh, wisdom blossoms, and 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 so we're not there's that's the selfing accomplishing and all of that it just gets greatly reduced. And it's just, it's a joy and we see the wholesomeness of our practice. We see it. And so we, we do it because it's wholesome. And whatever then happens, we're all for good things happening, but we're not laying claim in the same way. When we're young, we're, we're you know, the ego and all the body chemistry, there's all that energy going through us. And so then we, you know, there's all of this kind of striving and that's there in all the religions. But that goes away. That goes away. We outgrow that and we realize, no, there's somehow being in the Dharma, being available to the Dharma. Ah, beautiful. Part of what I hear is like, yeah, there's effort. Tori talked about energy, effort, and yet the fruit of the path feels a lot more like grace. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And and that there's this uh what feels like a very I don't know what what the word you would say when what you uh, so it feels like if we were to learn 
how to not suffer, we would not have any liberation. You almost have to have that struggle on the cushion in order for us to even have a conversation about liberation. Because without it, you, uh, it's, is it, so is it, what is the word? Isn't this like going against the grain? We're all here to learn how not to struggle, but it's the very struggle that's going to keep, mm-hmm. allow us to be liberated. <laughs> anyway. <Yeah. laughs> I just had this aha moment. <laughs> <laughs> That's the opposites getting reconciled. Yeah. The pain gain. Uh, sukha makes no sense without dukkha. There's no reference point. There's not. There's no orientation. And um, you know, the the Buddha talked about the fortunate of the human birth because there's just enough suffering to uh, to uh, have us realize. The change, but it's also not so much suffering that we collapse under it. And he meant that in a general way, because obviously there's all sorts of people that don't get a chance. We're fortunate, so we're not dismissing that. But he's saying that the human condition in general. Mm. So yeah, mm. so we're we're fortunate in that. That's the that's the good fortune of a human birth. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think, uh, Matthew? You've been asking us all these questions. What about this idea that uh, you needed to go through all that suffering mm. in order for you to even get to this place here where you're at? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> that's why I'm a little, um, I don't know, I'm a little... Yeah, I alluded to it at the top of the hour, like this question about um, these punctuated growth phases or, or cardinal experiences that are inflection points where something really shifts, you know. And, and sometimes the change is very gradual and sometimes it does seem more, much more dramatic. And... But I'm even suspicious of some of the dramatic... We give all the credit of the dramatic mm-hmm. breakthroughs to that moment. And a lot of it feels actually like totally dependent. And the whatever freedom comes in that moment, it, it is like tied completely to all of the super gradual quotidian just coming back and just, you know, this can't possibly be what the Buddha was talking about. This cannot possibly be what the teachers are suggesting. There's no No way way. that this is the practice. (laughs) There's no way that I am a practitioner. There's no No way, right? You know that feeling. Oh my... No way. Yeah, no way. No way. And yet this is it. This is it. And like the cardinal kind of moments depend and are bound to all of the dukkha, you know, that precedes it. And, you know, like the notion of of having, of just like induce, let's just say, you you know, pharmacologically or you know, electrically, you could induce a certain kind of, you know, insights or perceptions or something. That itself is not, is not freeing outside of the context of all that's come before, all the cultivation, all of the kind of like slow growth of like muscle training, you know, that's happening along the way. And so, and you know the last thing is just like where does our where does our love come from other than dukkha you know like hmm. where, where 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 does it come from other than you know the 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 love that is not informed by agony is not a mature love yeah the love that is not informed by grief is not a mature love. The love that is not informed by, you know, the endlessness of dukkha, like that's not a mature love. And so I can't imagine, you know, I can't imagine yeah. being, yeah. Free. That's so wise, Matthew. 
when I think about it, you know, I grew up in rough times, a very dysfunctional family in the housing projects. I was on welfare. I mean, I had big drama. But I don't think I ever really connected with something like love and metta until I was willing to actually feel the dukkha of my own life. But, you you know, I, I could tell you all the things that went wrong in my life, but I was out there trying to fix them all, fix it, get it right, make it better, whatever. And I was good at that. But I did not stop to feel the pain of this uh, living the way I was living, always rushing into the future. And until I did that, I don't think I ever opened to any kind of, any kind of dukkha. I, I even remember the moment that I opened to love. Mm. I was watching a, 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 some show with my two boys. And I think the oldest must have been in high school, so the youngest was in middle school. And a commercial came on with two weeds. One was tall and thin, and one was short and fat, like Laurel and Hardy. And they had suitcases, and they were running down the street. And one of the weeds said, do you think we're going to get out? Do you think we're going to get away? And the other was like, I don't know. I, I just, just keep going. Just keep going. And this giant boot came in front called Roundup. <laughs> oh, my God. I lost it. I mean, lost it. I, you know that kind of crying when you can't talk? And my kids are looking at me like, what happened? And I said, they were just trying to get away. <laughs> I lost it. And I realized after that, that moment that I had somehow accessed a degree of care that I didn't even know I had. I didn't know that I could care about beings outside of me outside of my family, outside of my world, with such a force like that. Mm. Oh, my God. My kids were like, maybe you should leave that meditation alone (laughs) (laughs) for a little while. (laughs) It was unbelievable. But that was the beginning of me softening into love. And that really came after I started actually feeling into my own pain. Not the things aren't going right pain, but feeling into the pain of living the way I was living. Mm. That's mm. really beautiful, Matthew. I'm, I'm so glad you said that. I didn't really make the connection here until you said it. Mm. Man. That's really a beautiful story, actually, in so many different ways. Yeah, oh. that's really great. So I had a friend, he's been dead for some years now, named George Leonard, and he wrote a little small book called Mastery, and I think it's still in print. I more or less forced him to write it, but um, uh, he was a writer for me. And um, um, he, he has this wonderful phrase about being really a master at doing something, and he says, you must learn to love the plateau. Because, and he would say, there's all of this time when you're on the plateau and it looks like nothing's happening, but that's when the real stuff is happening. And the moment the breakthrough is just that one next step Mm -hmm. and you go, oh, that's the big deal. But no, it all happened in the plateau. Mm -hmm. And I, I look at it as like we're underneath this ice and we're slowly cutting through the ice. We can't see light, but we could have cut through a lot of ice because there was a lot there in this part of our life. And we, we've, we're gradually cutting through. And then we start to see a little bit of light. And, and, uh, but then maybe the, the, it's thicker there or there, you know, something happens. So it really slows down for reasons we don't know why. And then all at once, it breaks through. And, and, then, and we remember those breakthrough moments, but we forget yeah. all of those hours on the cushion, all of those times of inquiry in our daily life, the times we, we really lined up you know, 
lined up in daily life with the very values that we're lining up here on retreat. And uh, I've, I've seen so many instances of transformation in people that uh, would not have on the surface seemed the most likely person, you know, for various kinds of conditioning reasons. But in fact, the, 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 the commitment to practice and the commitment to uh, being real in the way they view themselves, that has so, it's so helpful if we can be real how we view ourselves, that word authentic I use. But my goodness, you know, your ego, the ego can be so defensive and you defended and we have to let loose of all of that in some way enough to... And the Dhamma helps us. It, it, it is healing to the ego as we, as we start to understand that dukkha is not our personal fault. You know, whether we, we may take it as fault as guilt or shame or, uh, you know, resentment, however we, we do the dukkha we've had in our lives or what we can't do or all of this. And uh, we eventually, the, the Dhamma, you just kind of, it, it just gets, it, it does get chipped away. It does, it uh, uh, just, just for the meal that Joseph used to describe it that way. It does get, there is a, we get beyond that. And uh, the, then the next trick of that is that, like you, you did recognize and you remember when you get beyond it. Maybe you can remember too. I can't, I can remember various things that I suddenly discovered that suddenly I was not perturbed by something or uh, there, was, there was some attitude that was not my accomplishment. Um, yeah, and, and that's beautiful when that happens to us. When it does, and, but you've got to recognize it. But, and if, you're, if you're, your ego either will try to own it or like go, that's not enough. You know, but, so really appreciating those little moments. Mm. That was a huge moment for you. Oh my goodness. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so would you, uh, if you were talking about uh, striving in relation to uh, you know because you were talking about when you first started there was a lot of striving it, it, would you say there's uh, less striving no striving striving in a new form uh, how would you describe your relationship to that whole experience now, as you are now in your practice? Um, there's um, st- still a real consciousness of what is um you know what is to to be purified in my heart but um there's a basic sense that this life like it, it's been enough you know like Nothing else has to happen, mm. and I don't need to get any happier or deeper. I, I don't. I don't need to become any more. And that, um, in a way, I you know I'd want to live. I want. I. I, I don't want to my life to end, but. Uh, I feel like, oh yeah, if it did, this would have been enough. Mm-hmm. And whatever is left, you know, we're all living on borrowed time. And whatever's left, it's um, it's gravy, and it's a gift, and um, that so- takes a lot of. Um, pressure mm-hmm. off mm-hmm. Uh, just not a pressured way of living yeah. so there's more purification of the motive right there so it's interesting that you have that feeling of enough and yet you keep practicing mm. and I'd like both of you to verbalize uh, why is it we keep practicing you know mm-hmm. because we do 
you know, and then we serve the Dhamma. So how would you describe the, the, the motivation? Which I don't know if I could describe it, but how would you describe it? <laughs> I think he was looking at you first. Mm. <laughs> Twary? <laughs> <laughs> I guess uh, what came to mind when you said that was... Um, that habit is a big deal and it is not easily removed. So in some respects, I can feel my habit energy pushing up against my insight, my wisdom. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it feels like it chips away at the insight and the wisdom. But the practice is like... Uh, taking care of the body, renewing the body. It's like this constant refreshing so that I, so that the habit mind does not get bigger than my wisdom mind, like it used to be. It used to be habit mind really big, wisdom mind really small. And I practice to this constant kind of renewing the wisdom mind so that it doesn't... Um, it's not like the habits are gone. It's just that it's, uh, it doesn't have the impact on me that it used to have. Mm -hmm. That's the way I would say. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love that. Um, mm. I don't know, what's coming up is like, what else are we going to do? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel you that. Know? I feel that. Just like, yeah. Love, learn, you know, wisdom, compassion, like what else? What are the alternatives? Yeah. I've given that answer a number of times the same way because I... If I had something better to do, I'd go do it. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. It's, it's, it's not like I'm a believer, you know. It's yeah. just that thus far life shows that this is... So we keep practicing. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll give you... Uh, I'm aware of our time here, yeah. but I'll, I'll give you a, a more mysterious answer. Um, I, I, it, is, it is my experience in my deepest moment that... that Love drives the practice. Mm. It's just love. And that love, the way you would, one way one would know that love is in the experience of that completely empty awareness, that capacity of knowing, that's, but that's beyond there being a subject knowing an object. Uh, that level of consciousness, which is beyond subject and object. And when, when it discovers in all of that, is this what I call benignness, but what I think in, in our regular language we would call love. It's the energy of the unfolding. It's in some mysterious way. Hmm. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's just sit for a moment. Just touching in to your to your heart, to the deepest love. So intimate and yet uh, 
Mm, not ours, not us. And just being carried by that, the mind carried by that. May our efforts, may they be of benefit. Um, so, uh, yeah, you're welcome to, to make your way out as we, uh, tidy up and, 